That name is Jesus. Oh, how I love him. Do you love Jesus? Amen. And how we praise him. When we love him, when we know him, we praise him. Oh, Father, we thank you. We praise you today. We love you. We thank you that you loved us so much. You sent us the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, who came and lived among us, bore our sins to Calvary, and for, has forgiven us our sins, and has rescued us, and brought us into this marvelous kingdom of your light and life forevermore. So we praise you, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us a fresh sight and sight line of Jesus even this morning. Lord, as we know our Savior, we live our lives correctly. And help us to know him and help us to love him and help us to serve him and help us, oh God, to praise him in all that we do. So we thank you now for this time in your word. And I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would direct us and lead us to truth and that we might lead lives that honor your, uh, your love for us and what we know to be true, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. And amen. One of the glaring downsides to the Reformation, that'll catch your attention quickly. You're like, what? He's downing the Reformation? Yes, you won't hear me say that very often, but one of the big glaring downsides to the Reformation... In case you don't know what that is, 500 years ago when Martin Luther and others split away from uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, to lead us to grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is uh, uh, an amazing and wonderful thing and a wonderful truth about the word of God. But one of the big downsides is the fragmentation of the church into denominations. And I, I say that's a glaring downside because diversity of theology is not our strength. Unity of theology, unity around the truth is our strength. And that means that there's no central agency that, that holds us all accountable that says this is the truth. This is doctrinal truth. And that's why we like to uh, hold ourselves here to the Word of God as the authority. It is the one that should bring us all back to truth. And, and uh, yet we have this diversity around us. And it's, it's, it's misleading. It's misrepresentational. It's confusing to our world around us. It hasn't been healthy and it hasn't been good. But by God's grace, He has used the weaknesses and failings and flaws of mankind, and in spite of ourselves, for his glory has led people to himself. And here we are this morning, uh, from all kinds of backgrounds, singing the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to his glory. But in this deficiency, there is also a failure, I believe, to correctly define the gospel. And in particular, what we're looking at over this series as we're studying the book of Mark, who himself gave the lead line, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
it behooves us, it's critical for us to understand the gospel, to know what it is, to be able to define it. When I say, what is the gospel? Depending on what tradition you come from, denominationally, you'll have a probably different answer for what is the gospel. Uh, Jesus talks about proclaiming the good news of God. What is the good news of God? Pastor Steve prayed in his prayer this morning, the rule and reign of God. I like that. That brings us really close to the definition of the gospel because one of the challenges among us is the emphasis with which, in terms of denominationalism, is the emphasis with which we define the gospel and practice it. In our circles, it, we were asked to define the gospel. We would tend to say, well, the gospel is evangelizing. It is telling people that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and they can be saved. That's what we define the gospel. And there are others out there who say, no, 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 well, that's, that's nice, but... But uh, our emphasis is more about social concern. We, we, uh, we lead and proclaim a social gospel. There are others, depending on what place in the globe you live, mostly South, Af uh, South America, Central America, who will say, no, 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 not, not that. It's, it's liberation gospel. It's about liberating ourselves from the oppressors of other overlords or other races and that's what Jesus came to do he came to set us free from all of that and so we're about liberation theology and then of course there are others out there saying no no the gospel is about health and wealth that's the gospel still others say no the gospel is for just believers it's about sanctifying believers and and how believers grow and then there are still others who say we've got it all looked after we call ourselves full gospel now I actually like that term. I just don't necessarily like how it's been used. I think we need to be full gospel. I think that's what Jesus intends. And I believe today uh, we're going to encounter, um, which is the purpose of this, is to study Jesus and let Jesus tell us what the gospel is. Let, us, let him teach us the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn, and I trust you do, to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses, Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 12. Did I say Matthew? Well, that's a good, that's a good gospel too. But I haven't prepared Matthew 2 today. I've prepared Matthew or Mark 2. Thank you for being so forgiving. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. You know, from the New Testament profile of Jesus, who came proclaiming the good news of God, so I think we can get our definition from him, the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? <clears throat> Jesus came to demonstrate that the good news is true, that the good news about God is true for your life, and this gospel is where lostness and sins and sickness and salvation intersect. So let's look carefully and allow ourselves to build our case for the mission of Christ. As I said, in our movement, in particular our Baptist movement here, our evangelical movement, we are tempted to make the word gospel synonymous with evangelism. I have people regularly say, give us the gospel, Pastor. Would you please give us more gospel, Pastor? And what they're really saying is, would you please give us more altar calls? Would you please call people to salvation? That's what they're really saying. Or they say, we never have the gospel. We don't have the gospel much at Calvary. 
We don't have a, Are you kidding me? We open up the Bible and we preach the Bible, the God's word to you. We are preaching the good news of God. It's the gospel. Let's not truncate it to one tiny aspect of God. So the good news of God is much broader than the message of salvation and altar calls. It's certainly not less, but it's much broader than that. Mark 2. A few days later, by the way, contextually, you know that Jesus, if we're following along, Jesus has gone out and he's been proclaiming the gospel of God and he's been going around to surrounding cities and then it says a few days later he comes to Capernaum. It's, the, the way it's a, a few days later is describing more like a, a short period of time because it takes lots of days to go around and preach the gospel in, in uh, some of the cities surrounding the area. But in, in a short period of time when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your, sin, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Well, this is the Word of God. You all heard a sermon on this before? It's not new to you, is it? Y'all heard many sermons, two, three, five. I have my work cut out for you. There's some fresh stuff here. There's some important stuff here for you. I want to I share five gospel lessons, as the time permits, five gospel lessons learned from Jesus when spiritual need collides with great physical need. Hint, hint as to where we're going with all of this. Gospel living where Christ is ruling and reigning over our lives and our hearts. That's what this particular early story in Mark builds a case for, builds um, a case for a fuller, more robust gospel, certainly than some of us have been prepared to accept. There's some surprises here. Would you agree? Even though you've read it a number of times, and, and every time I read it, I'm still surprised when I read it, because there are surprises that leap out. And the first one is this. God rewards risk and effort because it demonstrates our great confidence in Jesus. Do you notice it's really kind of surprising here. It says here, when Jesus saw their faith, the guys carrying their friend into the presence of Jesus. Now, let's, let's uh, back up a few minutes here. Jesus had become a mega preacher. 
Everywhere he went, crowds gathered. And he was wanted everywhere to hear his message. And one day while he is preaching in a house in Capernaum, there are four desperate guys who bring their friend to Jesus. And they're hoping that they can get him to Jesus because they believe in their hearts that if they can get their friend to Jesus, he will heal him. Now, I, I have this imagination about these guys. It's not in the text, and, uh, but, but I, I have this. I, I always like to think about what, what would make these guys go to this effort that they go to to get their friend to Jesus. And I can only think of one word, guilt. That's just the way I think. I, I think that they might have had something to do with the guy's paralysis. Because I think about, you know, as I, as I read the whole text and I read what Jesus does with the guy and all of that, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, these could have been five riotous friends who, you, you know, um, they're the kind of guys who everybody says to them, you know, it's all fun until somebody gets hurt. You know that phrase? And I'm thinking of these guys are out there just living a really bad, riotous life, and one of their friends pays the price of a major accident is paralyzed. And now they feel responsible and they are, I, I, I this is just sanctified imagination, folks. You don't have to take this. This is just my idea. And so they bring the guy to Jesus and they see crowds and they're like, what are we going to do? Now, some of us would say, well, I guess it just isn't his day. Maybe we just, you know, we'll just go home and maybe we'll try another day and maybe, maybe if we come, er, come earlier or whatever. No, no, they were determined to get their friend to Jesus. Now, Jesus is preaching, maybe from Isaiah, who knows? He preached from Isaiah a lot because there's a lot of messianic uh, 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 teaching in, in the book of Isaiah. But as he's preaching, all of a sudden, globs of dirt and sod start dropping on his head. Now, I am very easily distracted as a preacher. And I just can't imagine what that would be like. Like all of a sudden the roof starts, things from the roof start falling on you. But that's what happened here. These, and and, and what, what you have here is these guys, you see the houses in the ancient Near East were flat roofed. And they'd have a staircase up to the roof. It was very hot there in the summers. So they would build a flat roof. They would build it with beams that would have big gaps in it. And then they put lay sticks across those beams. And then they would mud over the sticks... And sometimes grass would grow on that, or they put some tile on it, and then people would go up there at night and just like cool off. Sometimes you would sleep up there, regularly sleep up there. So it wasn't a, a, a big stretch for them to come up with a, this idea, let's go up in the roof. But uh, can you imagine? They just start digging it up. Like, it's not like they got out of shovels and started scraping off uh, shingles and then got a saws all out, started cutting a big hole in the guy's roof or anything. This thing could be repaired. Not, it was that difficult. And literally it says here, these guys unroofed the roof. That, that's the extent they were willing to go to to get their friend to Jesus. To know Jesus should inspire vigorous acts of faith, faith beloved. You know, when I hear Melissa sing this morning that name is Jesus, oh, how I love him. And how much wells up within me of how much I want to praise him. And how much I trust him. And how much I want my family and my friends and my co-workers to know him and praise him too. 
And when we come to a weekend like next weekend and we have this opportunity to get our friends to Jesus, my question is, what kind of hindrance does it take to stop you? What would be the barrier? What would be the obstacle threshold that you say, no, that, that is too much effort for me? What would it be? What would be too much effort for our church? This, I think, is our 11th year, 12th year, 12th year, and a lot of people pour a lot of effort into this and many other outreaches, our summer student programs, our child programs, our school programs, our Christmas programs, our Easter programs. Beloved, what is too much effort for us to get people to Christ? Because I notice in this text that to Jesus, he notices the effort and the risk he notices our faith, and it matters to him. Their faith was what Jesus noticed, and it made a world of difference in the life of that man. And I believe that our faith and our effort, if we understand we serve the same Jesus, has every effect on the people whose lives that matter to us, who we're willing to bring to Jesus, because when you know who Jesus is, it causes you to have vigorous faith. And that's what faith is. Faith is believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, what evidence do you have in your life that you believe he is? And what evidence in your life do you have that, that you believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him unless you actually bring people to Jesus, that you bring yourself to Jesus. Faith and action sets up a scenario for those things to happen. If you believe that Jesus can save people, then put people in the way of Jesus. If you believe he is who he is, then introduce people to Jesus. And go, don't allow anything to get in the way or stop you, including a roof if you have to unroof it. Don't unroof our roof. Because we're paying big bucks to fix it right now. This would not be a good time to unroof our roof. Second, I want you to notice the next surprise. The man came paralyzed. And Jesus says to him at the end of verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. I didn't come here to get my sins forgiven. I came here to get my back fixed. Jesus says, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Look at. I want to talk about the priority of the gospel and what the fullness of the gospel looks like from Jesus' life. Jesus makes the proclamation of God's word and the need of forgiveness his primary mission. Don't miss that ever. In a world of great spiritual need, there are no end, there is no end of illnesses and oppression and physical hassles. But Jesus starts with the man's heart condition, the condition of his soul. And that's where we Baptists like to stop. This text is going to encourage us that the gospel is fuller than that. So he says, son, your sins are forgiven. In this case, I, I, I hope we understand that at the time of Jesus, they overemphasized and overly connected sin and sickness. 
They overly connect. And we know that because you remember when the, the disciples and Jesus encountered the man uh, born blind, John chapter 9. The first place they went was Jesus who sinned, him or his parents. And Jesus said, neither. Not, it's not about their sin. It's that the glory of God might be demonstrated in his life. Human nature at that time, and in particular in the context of the ancient Near East, in the context of the time of Jesus, was sickness and sin were overly connected. I would submit to you that we have allowed the balance to go too far the other way. We have too disconnected sin and sickness. And I think Jesus is going to bring us right back to the center of what the gospel really is. But let's hold on to that for a few moments. In this case, there's no question in our minds that Jesus, the truth about this guy's paralysis and his sinfulness and lostness were connected. We can't deny, we can't deny that or debate that. He couldn't become whole of body until he was made whole of soul. That's why Jesus goes here. And the teachers of the law from their vantage point are just sneering at Jesus. Because in their mind, they're like, come on. Anybody can say, son, your sins are forgiven. Where's the proof? And so this showdown is about to take place. And uh, that moves us to our third uh, observation here. It says in verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Why would they say that? Well, they were no doubt familiar with Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. There's a description there that reads this way. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I... Am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Now, who's the I in this text? Class? It's God. God is the one who declares that he alone is the one who blots out our transgressions for his sake and remembers our sins no more. Jesus arrives in this house, looks at this man, and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say to this man, Son, you need to have your sins forgiven by God, which is what I would say, which is what all of you would say if you were proclaiming the gospel. But Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I'm forgiving you of your sins. So you can understand why the teachers of the law are sitting there saying, this guy is blaspheming because he's taking upon himself the persona of the living God. That's what's being said, stated here. So the, the third observation that I want to make is, is very important for all of us. The, the eyes will no longer see what one's faith has given up on. The teachers of the law, or we know them as the Sanhedrin, were the supreme court of Jewish orthodoxy. It was their role to pay attention to what was being taught and keep the Jews in line with their correct theology. Now, 
Jesus' activities had been escalated to their desk. And so they had sent out an observation party to sit uh, at, have courtside seats, like Drake-like seats, I will call him Aubrey, to watch and to listen to what Jesus is saying. And they came there intending to push Jesus around. In the battle of the mines, of course, they found out that they were unarmed. Here we have an, the irony of this situation because we've had two s- scenarios where there were demon-oppressed uh, uh, people and the demons had stated and declared accurately who Jesus was. And here are the teachers of Jewish Orthodox theology not recognizing who he is. Why? Because they refused to. Their eyes could no longer see what their faith had given up on. They had given up on him, and they were charging him with blasphemy, imagine. Beloved, listen, beware of any religion that has become its own authority, particularly by bypassing Jesus. Bypassing Jesus is fatal. And you have, you know, we all know sitting in here that there are a variety of religions in the world that have become their own authority and bypassed Jesus. That's not primarily what I'm talking about, although, yes, beware of them. I'm talking at this point of beware of churches that begin overruling the authorized words of God. Beware of churches that are proclaiming that modern morals can no longer be measured by the Word of God. Beware of churches that hold their own authority over the authority of God's Word. When we talked about denominational confusion, and I continue and we continue to call all of us back to the Word of God, the Word of God is the central teacher of orthodox theology for all of us. We call ourselves back all the time. The church doesn't have authority. The Word of God has authority to teach the church how to practice the Word of God. Man's words should never supersede God's words. But here we have the teachers of the law doing just that. And here they were witnessing with their own eyes that Jesus can forgive sins. If Jesus can forgive sins... We read in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, Isaiah 33, 22 and 24, Isaiah 43, 25. If Jesus can forgive sins, then Jesus is God. If what Jesus proclaims comes to pass, Deuteronomy 18, 22, the test of a true prophet, then Jesus' teaching is true, and Jesus is teaching as a true prophet. And if Jesus can heal diseases and heal injuries, then as we read in Isaiah 29, 18, and 19, and Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, and Isaiah 61, 1, and 2, then the God who heals diseases and injuries, then Jesus must be that same God. If Jesus can discern thoughts, then we read in 1 Samuel 16, 7, and Psalm 139, 1 to 2, Jeremiah eleven twenty, Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10. If Jesus can discern thoughts that only God can discern, then Jesus 
has declared himself and has demonstrated himself in the eyes of all those onlookers who he truly is, then Jesus possesses the same capabilities of the God of the Bible. And therefore, those who deny him are blasphemers. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, and Jesus, knowing your thoughts and my thoughts, understanding full well what they said under their breath. Jesus says to them, which is easier? To say, son, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and get out of here? Well, all of us would answer the question, you're a little hesitant, which is easier? First of all, both are impossible without God. However, from their cold-hearted perspective, for them it was like, anybody can say, your sins are forgiven, but to be able to say, get up, take your mat, and walk out of here, now that would be something. So we read in verse 8, he know, immediately he knows what they're saying, what they're thinking, and he asks them the question, and he says to them, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out. This episode, to me, reveals something. How willing people are to abandon common sense and logic and embrace fantasy and paradox and lies rather than submit and surrender to the Lordship of Christ. I mean, they were sitting here witnessing with their own eyes, being satisfied by the living Christ, by the living God himself, that he had the authority to, to forgive sins in that he called this man to be healed. And so hard were their hearts that as we continue to read on in the Gospel of Matthew, that they doubled down on their unbelief and sent him to the cross of Calvary. Now, who can justify crucifying a man who forgives sins and heals people of their diseases? Lesson four. In a world of great physical need, Jesus makes a connection between sin and sickness and therefore evangelism and loving compassion. I want you to notice this. This is very important for, uh, I think, uh, to have a full gospel approach to life. From Jesus' teaching and perspective and modeling here, Treating the sin of this man, the sin of this man was necessary for treating the paralysis of this man. Make no mistake about it, fallenness, our fallen world has extensively damaged us. In the age that we live in, the reality is affliction. The age to come, we are looking at wholeness. And we have this showdown between those who had no faith and Jesus. 
Now, by the way, Jesus neither uses the promise of health care as a bait for the gospel or a bait for his teaching, because the first thing he does is talks about the man's sins, nor does he disconnect sickness from sin. Neither does he draw a hard line between proclamation of the truth for the soul and compassion and kindness for the body, like we are wont to do sometimes. We are, we are so, we've got to get the gospel, we, that, which means code for, we've got to get evangelism, we've got to get people saved. Listen, we have to have compassion and love for people who are hurting and oppressed as well. That's the gospel too. And Jesus doesn't draw a hard line between the two or disconnect the two. He brings them together for us. In this incidence, God's presence and wholeness for soul and body are juxtaposed and, and, and yet only to be realized in the age to come. So let's give full attention to God's word here uh, to people of God in terms of our responsibility in the, the robust gospel in both Timothy um, and Ephesians. Paul reminds us or talks to us about the importance of a robust gospel when he says, in Timothy, for instance, all Scripture is God-breathed. You know that text. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And then it goes on to say the purpose of all of that, that the man or woman of God might be specialist in good works that we might know good that we might that we might practice or be special in good works and likewise he says in Ephesians 2:10 for by grace are you saved through faith not of yourselves not not of works lest you should boast and then he says for we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared in advance for us to do the the point of the gospel of salvation is that we might practice the gospel of good works. We are not saved by our good works, but we are gospel living people by our good works. That's the robust gospel. So let me give you just four quick subpoints under this whole idea of, of sickness and sin because as Baptists, we haven't really, in my experience, done a fantastic job in this. And it's, it's helpful for us to look here at how Jesus practices the two. Let me just state something up front because I believe this is what Jesus is teaching us. I believe the Bible teaches this. All sickness is connected to sin. All sickness. Either directly to the person or indirectly to our connection to the fallen world. When the Son of God, creator of this world, created this world, he did not create sickness. That's not the way it was supposed to be. Sin brought sickness and disease and disability and flaws and failures and all that's come with that. So all sickness is connected to sin. Jesus is sent by the Father to fix that. Second subpoint. Blood tests don't show everything. The soul ultrasound is needed 
A person is never really well until it is well with their soul. There are a lot of people in the kingdom of God who are still sick from past sin or guilt that needs to embrace the healing that is available if forgiveness is really taken seriously by faith. Son, your your sins are forgiven you. I can tell you that he wouldn't have got up off the mat unless he had embraced that forgiveness of Christ. Jesus puts his sin at the forefront of his problem physically. Third subpoint. Physical challenges and sickness are also employed as agents of God, God's agenda for us. Physical challenges and sickness are also employed as agents of God's agenda for us. In other words, you must not gaze at your brothers and sisters' sicknesses or maladies and immediately judge them sinful. Because you, you, would, you would also be entirely incorrect. This is why I said they took the pendulum too far and judged every sin or every sickness as sin and we have taken the pendulum too far the other way and regularly ignored the possibilities that sickness and sin might be connected. Don't do that. But let's make sure we understand that some of us are sick because it is God's agenda for us. For purposes known only to him. We later find out by insight into the Apostle Paul's life that he was allowed to have a sickness in his life because God wanted him to have the thorn in the flesh that he might not be lifted up with pride. There are any any number of possibilities why sickness might be resident in your life. And let's understand one thing. Unless the Lord comes back and takes us to glory, all of us are going to get sick and die. And um, it's important for us, therefore, to understand that God has his own reasons and his own, his own um, agenda for us. Fourth subpoint to this, we ought to connect the power for healing more to God and therefore prayer and less to individuals, i.e. faith healers, or as a last resort if medicine fails. If there's one thing we learn here is that Jesus connects sin and sickness and it is God who heals. And that's why later on in James, James writes to us in James 5, 14 to 16. That are there any sick among you? Let him or her call the elders of the church and let them pray, anoint him and pray over them. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Connection again. Let's understand something, that healing is, there's a complex relationship that we ought not to try and simplify between grace 
and faith and sin and God's glory and prayer and sanctification and obedience. To simplify it, to suggest that God's will for his children, for all of his children, based on the atonement, based on the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, is that all should be healed, is not true theology. It's not consistent with what we see anywhere in the scriptures. And it's unconscionable that some people would seek to become rich on the basis of that wrong theology by trying to tell every one of you that God's only intention for you is perfect health. That's just not true theology. Saints long ago until today get sick and die. And they have enjoyed, just like you and I, the benefits of the atonement of Jesus Christ. The benefits of the atonement of Jesus Christ are that we are saved and brought into his kingdom and a relationship with him now that might include hardship and suffering and sickness until that day when we are called home to be with him when all sickness and suffering and all will be gone. That's the truth of the atonement. That's the healing that we receive by his stripes. Our souls are saved and sometimes our bodies are rescued too. There is a connection and always a purpose. So let's go there. Let's, let's understand that if we are sick, it may be because we are sinful. So let's get rid of our sin, take our meds or not, depending on your persuasion. I'm not promoting one or the other. But I am promoting relying on God fully in prayer, no matter what. Healing is like every other miracle of the age to come. It is entirely dependent on the grace of God and His mercy to us. Finally, Jesus says to the man, Take your mat, get up, take your mat, and go home. He stands over the man and says to him, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And what do we read next? He got up, took his mat, and went home. Beloved, faith in action is that simple. If the man doesn't obey Jesus, he will continue laying on that mat for the rest of his life. When Jesus tells you to do something, you've been praying, he's not going to do it for you. Get up and do what he tells you to do. Faith is believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's the message of this. Faith is rewarded by obedience. How do we know that the man's sins were forgiven? How do we know that his soul was transformed? The first evidence in every single one of our lives is obedience to Christ. That's what makes baptism such a powerful visual for all of us. 
How do we know that a person's really come to faith in Jesus Christ? They start obeying him. And there's no greater evidence of obedience that you have come to know Christ than to publicly testify in front of your brothers and sisters that I have come to know Jesus Christ and I'm following in what he has commanded me to do. Get up, take your mat and go home. Go make disciples. What does Jesus say? Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, I'll become a disciple, but I'm not going to be baptized. Are you serious? Then don't expect what Jesus has promised down the line. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey whatsoever things I've commanded you. How will you ever learn to obey the things Jesus has commanded you if you can't even learn to obey the first thing he's commanded you? So the man walked out in full view, and it says here, everybody was amazed and praised God, except for those whose eyes were shut, and their ears were stopped, and their hearts were too hard, and they doubled down on their unbelief and went out from that place and tried to find ways to kill Jesus. So you are either among those who are amazed and praise God or you find reasons to explain away the obvious and thereby walk out as lost as you were when you came in. We must do what Jesus tells us to do in order to benefit from what Jesus offers to us. Forgiveness and release from suffering are found in Jesus alone. All other choices are fantasy and illogic and temporary relief at best. Father, how I thank you for your patience with us. Lord, I can tell you what I am so thankful for. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has the power to forgive sins, the power to heal us from our diseases, and the power to take us to be with him forever. And so, Lord, I pray that the gospel, the good news of God, will be fully embraced in all of its various parts by the people of Calvary Baptist Church. Lord, help us not to minimize the truth, not to um, seek to enculturate the truth into our comfort, our denominational comfort level, but rather, Lord, may we study Jesus for who he is, and may our lives and our ministry reflect the truth of the good news about God, whose rule and reign brings us into his kingdom and then leads us and helps us and heals us and entrusts us with illness even for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we wrap up the takeaway from 
the intersection of sin and sickness in Jesus' story with the paralytic. Please hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. It's important in terms of the takeaway. If you are hoping for physical healing, you better begin with investigating the sickness of your soul because that's where Jesus started. And if you are living right now an ongoing lifestyle of sickness of soul, it will not be long until you are experiencing sickness of body as well. Let's make certain we don't judge each other's sickness. It may be sin. It may be for God's glory. And not related to any personal sin. But we dare not, in some sort of rough fashion, disconnect our spiritual lives and our physical lives. We are whole people in need of whole healing from Jesus. So as I close in prayer, just know that um, pastors will be here at the front. And if we can pray for you in respect to anything, we'd want to do that. Father, We live in a fallen, broken world. And it's broken and fallen because of sin. The rebellion against you. And Lord, generations of people are suffering physical illnesses because of sin in their lives or in the lives of those who've brought them into this world or even before, as sin and sickness compounds itself in people's lives. You are the one who came to fix that problem, to break the bondage of sin and sickness. So I pray, dear God, that we will not be found to be out of balance, but that we will be people who embrace the wholeness of the gospel presented here. Wellness of soul and wellness of body come together in Christ. And I pray, O oh God, that we would not neglect to consider how we live spiritually and think that it won't matter physically. Nor should we neglect to think that it doesn't matter how we live physically and it won't matter spiritually. So let us come honestly to Christ and fall at his feet and ask him for mercy to receive wellness of soul and wellness of body. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen.